This is Blunderphonics, a semi-weekly music podcast where we talk about music's most troubled productions. My name is Spencer Faust. And I'm Jack Durback. And today, Jack, I want to share with you the Mars Volta's fourth album, Bedlam and Goliath. Which I've never listened to Mars Volta before, so this was an interesting treat for me. They were always a band I wanted to listen to. All I've really listened to was At the Drive-In. And so our, our principal characters in this story are Cedric and Omar, both of whom were born in the mid-70s and grew up in El Paso, Texas. Cedric was born in Redwood City, California, and Omar was born in Bayamon, Puerto Rico. Obviously, I would butcher their last names if I tried. So, <laughs> Well, if I had to pronounce uh, Kishawig or whatever the drummer's name was for Loveless, you have to do this one. You're right. Okay, so for just once, for authenticity, it is Cedric uh, Bixler-Zavala? And Omar Rodriguez Lopez. Obviously, Omar's is much easier. Cut me some slack. We're going to stick with first names. <laughs> so, in the early 90s, Cedric drummed for a band called Foss. And you, you know who the bass player was for Foss? Beto O'Rourke. Who is that? Oh, that's the senatorial candidate who ran against Ted Cruz in the in the 2018 midterms. What, what kind of genre of band was this? I'm interested. Let's talk about this band instead. I could... Don't press me on it, because I couldn't find clips of Foss. Wait, what is anyway. it? Is it? It's Faust, like your last name, right? No, no, no. F-O-S-S. Foss. Like, Floss without the L. Oh, okay. Anti-dental so, core. While Beto would go on to run for Senate, our boys Cedric and Omar would piece together at the drive-in in 94. And from 94 to 2001, they produced Acrobatic Tenement, In Casino Out, and Relationship of Command. My favorite of their albums, without question. The only one I've listened to was Relationship and Command, so mm -hmm. that's all I've really got to base my opinions on. I know a couple off Acrobatic Tenement, and I think one song off In Casino Out, but Relationship, great post-hardcore album. It's very raw. It's got a lot of energy. Yeah. And just listening to Mars Volta now, I could see a lot of traces of what they were in at the drive-in in it. It's just a lot more proggy. So it was interesting to listen to, like, the same band almost. Yeah, it's because uh, it's still very much Omar's play style. I mean, Omar's the guitarist, and it's very much his play style. And obviously, Cedric's voice is, number one, I'm a sucker for unique vocalists, but, I mean, like, two, you pick up Mars Volta, and you're like, there's virtually no distinction between Cedric in both bands. I think he's a little more aggressive in At The Drive-In, and in the Mars Volta, it's, I'm just saying, it's still the same weird lyrics, it's still, still the same guy. What I found really interesting, and what sets apart Relationship and Command to me, was how batshit it was. It seemed like they were this post-hardcore band, but they had so many influences bubbling under the surface. If you need, like, a taste of At The Drive-In, look up One-Armed Scissor. It's, it was their, like, biggest hit, I think, as a band. So At The Drive-In had what you could call a tumultuous run. Uh, there was heavy drug use, artistic differences, and just complete exhaustion took its toll on the band, and eventually enough was enough. Cedric just kind of stopped a show in the middle of it and was really pissed at the audience for moshing too hard, and I think he started calling them mindless sheep, and then he started bleeding at them like a sheep. So he was, he was a little stressed. <laughs> so the project splits into two at its end. You got the Mars Volta, where Cedric and Omar split apart and formed their prog rock band. Are you familiar with the second band that came out of At The Drive-In? Uh, Oasis. Yeah. Yeah. What? Wonder no. Wonderwall. No. no it's called Sparta. They're, a, they're an American rock band called Sparta. This is all completely foreign to me, so it's kind of fascinating to hear just how many bands sort of splintered off of At The Drive-In. Because mm -hmm. there was a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of creative and talented minds that came out of that project. And like you said, it's hard to describe the dissonance between these two bands. Because Mars Volta takes a much 
like they, they're very brave in how weird they want to get with their music if you know what i mean that's right i've only really listened to bedlam and goliath i can't really compare to the other albums how they've transformed from Relationship and Command as a whole. But you're right, it feels like Relationship and Command is a very focused record where each song has its own unique crazy thing about it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's still a post-hardcore album. All the songs just rock really hard. But when it comes to Mars Volta, it feels like a blender full of all of these weird ideas and almost like a snap, it just turns into something completely different. Mm -hmm. They really embrace a lot of what a lot of people think prog is. It's almost like this is how people who don't listen to prog think it sounds like, if that makes any sense. I listen to a lot of old prog. I like listening to Pink Floyd, which is a little bit more atmospheric, not as technical. But then you have bands like Yes, where it's very similar, but rock in the 70s was not as brutal sounding as this. So I could understand a lot of their influences, but there's just so many different things on just even a single track where it's just like, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And the technical prowess, you kind of lose Omar's prowess in Mars Volta. If I'm being honest, it's lost behind noise, really. Whereas his riffs are very out and center. Seriously, Mars Volta, if you just examine every role in that band, because there's... It's a much bigger project, too. It goes from, like, you know, four to eight people oh, in course, Mars Volta. Yeah. People who are, you know, devoted keyboardists, people who are just sound effects technicians in the band who are just in charge of managing all and these literally effects. Every single person involved seems to have been putting not only a lot of effort, but have been very technically good. Oh, like yeah. you said, it's kind of hard to hear the guitar stand out because you have... The vocalist, Cedric, he's got all of these effects on his voice where yeah. at some points it's very lo-fi and other points it's like super high-pitched. And then you have this funk guitar in one channel and then you have a saxophone in the other and these keyboardists sound like they're just falling over keys. The drummer sounds like he just pushed his drum kit down a flight of stairs. They're going as crazy as possible, which they did in At The Drive-In, but that was more focused. This is sort of like a million ideas just sort of ramming into each other. It's like a mosh pit of ideas ironically enough you're not kidding it's like it's it's almost so it's too much to take in thomas pridgen sounds like he has seven arms i <laughs> i don't i don't know how to put it like he's playing beats and i'm like there's no nobody has the limbs possible for this it's crazy because he actually only has six arms everyone wants to talk about <laughs> def leppard's drummer but thomas pridgen is a real champ <laughs> it's so fascinating to hear these musicians who have probably accepted at this point that, yeah, they're not going to be at the drive-in ever again, mm -hmm. and they're not going to get that kind of popularity, but they're just going to continue making music that they think is unique and pushing boundaries, and you cannot describe this album as anything other than itself. The Mars Volta is making music that nobody else could make. I am going to transition into Act 2 of this podcast. <laughs> And I'm going to tell you a roller coaster of a story. <laughs> bigger heights, bigger screams, more, sheep. more thrills, six flags, more, bleeding. more fun. Um, so put your fun hats on, everybody. Bedlam and Goliath. This album starts in the middle of the band's tours following Amputexture. In 2006, they were touring with Red Hot Chili Peppers, the very popular California funk machine. I'm surprised by that combination, actually. Like, Red Hot Chili Peppers is a more mainstream, acceptable prog. They're very funky, but, like, I'm imagining going from Californication to, like, Ouroboros and just having your minds explode. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, okay, I'm imagining it. Red Hot Chili Peppers... Man, this guy's really mad at me. <laughs> I just wanted to drink my beer. <laughs> 
What did I do? Play under the bridge again. I'm scared. Play under the bridge. Where's Danny California? So, so while they're touring with Red Hot Chili Peppers, Omar finds the time to head through Jerusalem. And he finds a pretty stereotypically mystical curio shop. And in it, they're selling a spirit board. So for context, you might know this more commonly as a Ouija board. But to be clear, a Ouija board is made by Hasbro and was deliberately made as a goofy board game in the mid-1900s. It's actually copyrighted, so you can't actually call it that. I think a lot of modern exactly. horror is like saying, oh no, it's our uh, word board. It's our ghost game. It's our Ouija board. It's the Luigi board. It's haunted. <laughs> Spirit boards, the OG, the alpha, the concept, these have been around for longer. And if you want to call anything, you know, quote-unquote haunted or mystically potent... I'd sooner believe it's an authentic ancient spirit board from Jerusalem rather than some shit sold at Target. So, like, <laughs> I mean, if there's going to be a place where one actually ends up being haunted, actually, it might be Target. It might be Target, actually. <laughs> Have you seen the demons that parade through there? You get angels when you buy it from a Jerusalem curio shop. You get Satan from Target. You get that corporate devil in you. So Omar grabs this spirit board which was renamed the Soothsayer, and he got it as a gift for Cedric. He was like, says that he just had a spiritual familiarity with the concept of ghosts and all that, and he was like, yeah, I believe in that. I'm not a, like, strong believer, but this looks like a cool gift for Cedric. So he picks it up and gives it to him. They rename it the Soothsayer, and much to Omar's surprise, when they're touring, Cedric just sits down at the bus and goes, hey, guess what I brought along? And he busts out the spirit board. And he's like, okay, yeah, you know, we get bored for these really long drives, so they decide this is, like, a cool way to kill some time. So the whole band sits around it, and they spend a lot of time fucking with this thing, like, after shows, on the road. They spend a lot of time hiding in their tour buses during this tour because people would come up to them at the merch tables or whatever, and, they'd and you know, you would expect, like, a fan-to-player interaction, and instead it was these, like, drunk 40-year-olds who were like, can you help me meet Danny California? <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I, I he's like, I love the chili peps. I need to meet the Danny California. <laughs> I fucking love the peps, bro. California forever. <laughs> Obviously, that gets stressful. You don't want to deal with those douchebags anymore, so they spend a lot of time in their bus. And I think we're all familiar with what a spirit board does or claims to do. But if you don't know, then it might alarm you to hear that Cedric and Omar started talking with a spirit via the board. Oh, wait, this is like actual fact. They just called some guy up. The board, when asked supposedly gave back a handful of names, including Goliath, Mr. Muggs, Patience Worth, and Tourniquet Man. Oh, okay, I'm spotting a few uh, song titles in there. The soothsayer told them stories, stories that were always about uh, a man and a woman and her mother. And the stories were always dropping hints about like a lusty love triangle going on between all three and about seduction and infidelity and pain and eventually murder like a brutal honor killing oh and this is exactly the kind of spooky shit you want from your spirit board so thus far money well spent so i'm imagining them just sitting around and they're like playing with the spirit board and they're hearing about like murders and shit and they're like this is gonna be a great album guys these ghosts are gonna help us out are the ghosts credited as engineers on this perhaps <laughs> i mean they get the fucking album named after them i mean one of the name <laughs> one of the names was goliath that's true they keep talking to the board and uh, uh-oh, it starts peeling and falling apart because it's it's super old. And they've been rubbing their fucking fingers all over it for like the past week. Exactly. They're not preserving it at all. So they peel the paper back and on the wood underneath is 
a Red Hot Chili Peppers vinyl LP. Yeah, and they sold it and made all the money they needed to make Bedlam and Goliath. The end. <laughs> oh my god. The wow. end. You've been listening to Blunder Phonics. Hold on. That's not it, is it? It's, I'm sorry, it's not. Shock and suspense ahead. There was pre-Aramaic poetry scratched onto the wood huh? underneath. Wait. Aramaic is like a, it's like a 6th century uh, Semitic language, and pre-Aramaic just means super fucking old, like, Cyrillic text. I'm just imagining uh, Cedric's like, what the heck is this? And Omar's like, oh yeah, that's a 6th century poetry. Like, he knew. <laughs> like, it's, one of them was an expert on this, and they're like, I, I can't believe I ran into this. It's an oddly specific thing to know, isn't it? So I, I'm also still hung up on, like, who... It's like, Cedric's like, yeah, I'm gonna buy this uh, spirit board. This is gonna be such a nice gift. And he gave it to Omar, and Omar's like, oh man, I'm gonna name you Soothsayer. What? Uh, okay. I guess it's just named that now. <laughs> Omar just buys it for Cedric. He's way too into it, actually. It's kind of freaking him out. They take it out on walks. It's I honestly we're joking. It's kind of the it's kind of the scenario that they tell. It's like a weird spiritual attraction, yeah. So Cedric takes that poetry, uh, which surprise surprise tells the same fucking story the board was telling them about an honor killing and a love triangle and this mother daughter and man. So Cedric translates it and he starts taking the poetry and directly turns it into lyrics for the album that they're working on at the moment. And Cedric uses everything from the the poems, like words, and the names that the board gives him, uses them all in the album that would be Bedlam and Goliath. Uses them for song names, lyrics, what have you. I will say, I am a skeptic when it comes to these sort of spiritual encounters. I'm kind of doubting the whole spiritual, like, the board told them these stories and then they found it under the board. Just hearing all this, I mean, even if they didn't hear any ghosts and they just peeled that back and got all this weird 6th century poetry, that's already a great story in itself. Like, the whole haunted aspect is just sort of, like, icing on the cake. That's a trend here. That's a trend here, is you won't believe 100% of this story if you're remotely skeptic, but there are bits and pieces that are like, oh, shit, that's probably true, and if that part's true, it's still an absurd story, right? You might not believe everything you hear on this podcast, but if you fail to share this to at least 10 of your friends, a ghost <laughs> will come and stab you in your sleep and whisper, Bedlam, Goliath, Tourniquet Man. Oh, don't forget Mr. Muggs. That's a good one. Mr. Muggs, which honestly, that just sounds like the dog. Like in the 6th century poetry, there was a brutal murder and then Mr. Pugs. What, Mr. Muggs, excuse me, not Mr. Pugs. Yeah, don't be fucking stupid, Jack. Mr. Pugs is ridiculous. Mr. Muggs, though, very serious. I'm imagining the album cover just having a pug on it. While we're on the subject of the album art, the album art for Bedlam and Goliath, it's from a series of 13 paintings, and all of them are equally as creepy. So, uh, enjoy that. Mm. Enjoy that. It's good art. Any uh, info on the artist slash inspiration? The artist got inspired by the story the band told them as far as I understand it, of, of how this album came to be, and so that inspires all this Middle Eastern imagery. Ask the spirits what he should paint next, and they're like, eh, it's just some people walking around the desert, little boy in striped <laughs> pajamas. Ooh, this is spooky. We'll be sure to link that artist's name in the description, because that's I'm, that's going to drive me nuts for the rest of this episode. <laughs> once the band got what they wanted, more specifically, once Cedric got what he wanted, he got all this poetry, he got the lyrics, and he got this inspiration for a concept album about this mother-daughter and this love triangle and the brutal killing... Once they got what they wanted, the board started allegedly asking for something in exchange. Oh, God, somebody's going to die. <laughs> and Omar was like, uh, okay, this is starting to line up with what, like, my grandparents, you know, told me about about how ghosts do. And he was like, <laughs> and, and here's the thing, they were already giving it something in exchange. I mean, Omar said that they were they were giving it, like, little glasses of rum. They would, like, just put the glass near it, and that would apparently get it to start talking. 
Just like me. If you give you give me a drink, I'll never <laughs> shut up. Just a couple swigs of some vodka or rum, and those ghosts will be talking all night. Such chatty Cathy's, honestly. They wondered why it peeled off so easily. They've been pouring rum all over the board for like ever. <laughs> it also turned, these, these guys are goofy. It turned blood red inexplicably. Oh no, it was the rum. That's yeah, no, that's a better <laughs> explanation. One of the things it was asking for at first was, let me trade places with one of you. And they were like yeah, no, Goliath, that doesn't sound like a cool trade. <laughs> and then he was like, fine, fine, bring me someone else. Bring me a kid and I'll get into them. They were like, ooh, this is getting a little heavy. So Omar says, okay, we got what we wanted. He takes the board, snaps it in half, and buries it. Oh, okay, did he not burn it? Because you know if you don't burn it, it just will come back in a full piece. It's going to be Jumanji again. If you want to buy into the spirit board superstitions and stuff, there's like a laundry list of stuff you got to do to get bad juju off you. You know, wear white for a year, fucking s uh, sprinkle it in salt every day. Yeah, throw salt over your shoulder and listen to Dave <laughs> Matthews, things like that to get rid of the evil spirits. <laughs> That's an actual thing, I promise. I'm not making that up. I wouldn't lie to you. Listen, if you listen to Dave Matthews every single day, honestly, it's going to be the low light of your day, so it can't get worse. <laughs> the ghosts will feel bad for you. They'll leave you alone. Goliath, maybe his angle was he wanted to tour with the Chili Peps. He was like, I... <laughs> he was a big fan. He wanted to meet Danny California. <laughs> I will say, you said the story was going to get crazy. I really thought you were going to be like, it wanted a little boy. And they're like, okay, we could do that. Fortunately, they did not give a little boy to the board. So Omar snaps the board in half, buries it in an undisclosed location. And Cedric just said, for the love of God, never tell me where that thing is because I might go dig it up. So they get rid of it. It's gone. Much in the way of Genghis Khan's body. Just bury it, kill the people who buried it. <laughs> so then all the band members killed themselves, and then as ghosts, they recorded Bedlam and Goliath. And it should be noted that the spirit board was only discussed between the band, and much later the album artist got the story. But that's it. And then now you are fellow viewers. You are the fifth set of ears to hear this. So as I understand it, there are rules uh, for how you play with ghosts. And one of the rules is don't hang up on them. Because uh, guess what? The band got cursed for shattering the spirit board. Uh, oh, what, what do you mean cursed? Well, they didn't give Goliath what he wanted. And then they snapped the board and left it behind. So, <laughs> surprise, surprise, some bad shit starts happening. This is where the um, factual timeline starts, if you will. I mean, you might have been rolling your eyes at all the all the ghost stories. I'm pretending like I'm a believer. I appreciate your your playing along because I'm certainly on record as saying ghosts are fakey fake bullshit. Ghosts are made up to sell Microsoft Connects because <laughs> apparently those are the best things to find ghosts. <laughs> ghosts were invented by Microsoft guys. You, you heard it here first. That's my hot take. That's anyway. The, that's the hottest take. <laughs> Let it be known that I do believe that bad luck. Or rather, coincidences just fucking happen. That's the way the world works. So, Bedlam and Goliath had its first written material ready to produce in April of 2006. And right when they're getting ready to record, the bass player comes down with what I'm assuming, based on the symptoms, was thalassemia, which is a genetic blood disorder that only 1% of the population gets. And usually that 1% is Asian, which he was not. Or 6th century poets from Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, they were licking the spirit board when the when the, when it peeled off. That was the other thing. That might explain some diseases. So they cursed his blood. Bass player gets a literal blood curse the minute they get rid of this thing. 
And he instantly became the most interesting band member in the entire group, as far as I'm concerned, because if you have cursed blood, you will make it far in the metal scene. So they blasted through recording of the album in like three weeks, which compared to another album we discussed on this podcast is very fucking fast. I was expecting you to say three years. I was... And Omar is doing a lot of the producing and sharing the heavy lifting with, with lifelong engineering friend of his, a guy that has worked on the past 15 albums Omar's done. Good friend of his. And this engineer tells Omar one day, after getting through recording, all of a sudden, he can't allow them to release this album. He goes into a complete nervous breakdown and insists that Omar was trying to drive him insane, and that the album was going to drive everyone insane, and that he was trying to hurt people with it, and that it was evil. Well, I mean, have you listened to it? So he steals the hard drives and shuts himself up in his house. Oh, he just flat out steals it. Yes, he just takes the hard drives and runs. Cedric and Omar attest that they had to send roadies and friends over to this guy's house to break in and steal the drives. So it becomes like an action thriller. This is like the best movie I've ever heard. And when they get the drives back, Omar said that all of the album's notes were deleted. And there weren't even ghosts of them on the hard drive. No artifacts. It was like they never existed. And on top of that... Everything was literally scrambled. Things were moved out of order, tracks were deleted, so on. What an asshole. He had a complete nervous break and sabotaged the project. If you don't mind me asking, who is the engineer? I'll tell you this right now, I can't find a reliable source on his name. What? Now, you could you could argue that when they, they talk about this in interviews, but they always just say, our engineer, or Omar says, you know, my engineer friend. Okay, so they just have this very strange man who they're just going to pretend doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. And you want another spooky detail is this engineer had literally no concept of the board. So just based on the fucking music itself, he thought it was evil and haunted and wanted to destroy it. Did he too have cursed blood? He might have had cursed First brain blood. Yeah, that might have been a thing he had. Oh, hang on. Whoa, do you hear that? Oh. What's that? Oh my god. It's it's Cedric. <gasps> and Cedric just had a crippling foot injury and needs to learn how to walk again. <laughs> oh my god, what happened to his foot? Apparently his shoes were on too tight. <laughs> Oh, that's the curse? That was his curse? Well, yeah. He, he tied his shoes? They, they, they fucking double-knotted his shoes. There's cursed blood, and then there's just... They, they tied their, his shoelaces together, and he tripped. It was so severe, he literally... He had to get foot surgery and relearn how to walk. Oh, wait, is this a... Okay, is this a real thing? Or are this you is just, real. I'm not kidding. Yeah, that's part two of the curse. Is, is Oh my god, ghost boots. Or really part three, because you have blood curse, you have the album getting stolen, you've got Cedric's feet. Oh, hang on. I can't wait for the locusts. I just, got, I just can't wait. I just got a text, Jack. And it says that... Oh my god. It says that three of their drummers quit in the same year. Back to back. Wait, they had three drummers to start with? They had three drummers in the same year. Like, they lost John Theodore, then they got Blake Fleming, and then he left. And then they got Tony Parks, and then they left. And finally... We get the one and only Thomas Pridgen, a very young face to this band. I mean, he's like 24, everyone's in their mid-30s, and he brings an energy. Supposedly, Thomas isn't afraid of ghosts. He was not scared off by this, and I believe it's because he was constantly drumming with 17 arms that were holding, like, <laughs> consecrated drumsticks full of salt. No, when you told me that three drummers quit, I thought you meant, like, they actually had three drummers, and then they just slowly ended up leaving, and we were only left with this guy. If you told me there were three drummers, it would make it sense. It would make sense! Listen to that goddamn album. There's so much drumming happening. <laughs> now, wait. Hold on. Well, I, I hear another knocking at the door, Jack. <laughs> oh, I'm so spooked. It's the studio. Oh, the entire studio. Omar's, specifically Omar's home studio in New York, flooded. Yeah, this was a basement studio, and it was connected to eight other basements side by side, and Omar's was the only one that floods. 
Oh my god. So they like took this big pipe, plugged it into the wall and just let the water flow. Exactly. Like I was joking about the locusts, but now I actually think that's going to happen. They're on biblical disasters now. They wanted the firstborn son of their band, and they said no, and now all of Jerusalem is suffering the consequences. <laughs> oh my god. Half the gear is lost. Tracks are missing. <laughs> Because, you know, they pack up the computer, they move it, they go through 17 fucking hard drives, and it's stuff is still going missing. Oh, by the way, once they, like, you know, get the flying taken care of and move it back in, it floods again. <laughs> so, like, the water is falling right behind them. Exactly. Imagine the water's got, like, a newspaper and sunglasses on, a trench coat, slowly, there's the next studio, I'm gonna hit it. Like Osmosis Jones, it's just <laughs> it's following like- him around. <laughs> worse yet, the mixing is getting even worse. Quote, even through the mix... Things are disappearing, and I have to go back into sessions to try and find them or retract them, Omar said. And they didn't just, like, mute the tracks. Like, they were actually gone. They were gone. Like, stuff just straight up lifted out of the tracks and disappeared. Oh, my God. Spencer, did you hear that? What's that? That that ghostly wailing? That sounded like a guitar being played with a tremolo? It's the ghost of Kevin Shields. No! He threw the whole album out of face. Kevin! He's gonna bankrupt them. (laughs) They move it over to California, and they switch up their choice of help. They bring in a producer by the name of Rich Costi, best known for his work in uh, the 2008 Foo Fighters album Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace, featuring, you know, Pretender. Oh, the one I know. Okay. Exactly. He's Stay also worked He's also worked with Seeger Ross, uh, Frank Turner, Muse, Foster the People, and Biffy Clyro. Oh, okay. This guy's got an interesting series of credits. Okay. He does. He does. He's got some pop. He's got some rock. He's, he's a very interesting mixer. These things keep happening, and then they keep happening in front of Rich Costi, too. So now you've got a witness. Costi, as Omar recalls, is a, a very scientific man. He's got a white beard, he's got these spectacles, he's bald, he's written many philosophical books. He never takes off his fucking lab coat, It's it, he's always holding a beaker in one hand and then the mouse with the other. So he's the type of person that you tell this story to and he says, no, 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 this is your imagination. You're making connections that do not exist. So he's a rational man. Exactly. He's a rational man in this scenario, which is what we need. We've got a bunch of musicians, creative types. When you have all that creativity going on, sometimes you blast things out of proportion. Exactly, exactly. And so he sees it finally. Rich is now a witness to this. And throughout the process, tracks are disappearing before his very eyes and his very ears. And they go back into the older playlists and it says that the track never existed and there is no history of it. I swear to God, one of them is, like, just going in and deleting it and just being like, man, they're going to think it's ghosts. It's going to be so funny. And he can't understand it, Jack. He doesn't get it. After all, he's a scientific man. He goes home, he does his research, and he comes back a few days later. And he says, you know what, Omar? I know what it is. I've looked it up. He looked it up, Jack. He looked it up. He knows what the problem is. Ghost blood. Quantum entanglement. (laughs) What? It's quantum entanglement, Jack, all along. Here comes the sci-fi chapter. Quantum entanglement is the um, metaphysical theory that particles can be connected despite not being in the same location. So, like, a ghost Omar is, like, taking away the songs. These songs are just phasing out of the universe or out of this dimension. Yeah, well, Rich is like, no, here's the thing. Ghosts are fucking stupid. What this is is this Muslim man from the three-way and from the Aramaic poetry, he's real, and his atoms are quantumly entangled with the music, and he's punishing you, to quote Omar. So for Rich... He needs a scientific explanation, which is quantum entanglement, whatever the fuck that is. And we see it as a curse. It seemed evident that there was so much fighting against the making of this record. 
that the only way to lift the curse was to actually finish the record. I don't want them to, because they'll all die. They persist. They fight on. Every day, tracks are disappearing. Ghosts are spilling ghost juice all over the hard drives. It's a total nightmare. <laughs> it's a rocky montage of, like, all these hauntings going on, and they're just still playing the bass, <laughs> playing the guitars. And the ghosts are like, ooh, they keep hitting delete, but they keep recording too quick. They make it through. They finish. And the album was finally completed. They finally lift the curse, and Bedlam and Goliath reaches number three on the U.S. Top 200. Number three? Yes. That took me by surprise, because this does not sound like an album that would be even close to the top three. I know, right? This is like when you hear, like, Pantera was number one at one point. It's like, what? Shut up. I know. And this was 2008. <laughs> yeah, this is like the year of Lady Gaga. It's, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. The album finally done, Jack. And now... What the hell do you think of this haunted album? Oh, it's hot shit. It's terrible. It's garbage. No, I actually... <laughs> I actually... Fuck it, actually. This is this sounds like a ghost chat all over it. I, I quite enjoyed this record. I did not know anything about any of these weird haunting quantum entanglement things. That all took me by surprise. All I knew was they played with a Ouija board. But as far as I know, I was like, oh, they played Scrabble, whatever, and then they made a record. Who cares? Fascinating story. A lovely thing to... Uh, conjure up to sell records in my opinion although it is very fascinating to me the record itself i enjoyed quite a bit how did you enjoy it i enjoyed it i enjoyed it i'll admit deloshed in the comatorium is my favorite but this album uh the opener i i love the chorus effect that they put on cedric's voice it's like such a good opener in my opinion they have a wonderful way of utilizing effects to the point where there's a reason they're there in the first place. Like, there are too many vocalists that try to mask their voice in either distortion or chorus, whatever. This is one of those bands where they're using these effects purposefully to make the voice as strange as possible. Mm -hmm. I think some of my favorite moments are when everything sounds very lo-fi and, like, crushed bit, and it sounds like these robots who are just, like, groaning underneath all this music. I don't really have D. Louse in the comatorium to compare it to. I just was like, okay, at the drive-in. And as soon as I click play, I'm like, I can't. I cannot, like, put them next to each other because of just how different it is. You're right. It's it's so much higher production value. There's so many effects going on. D. Loust is, in my opinion, a lot less vocal effects heavy. It sounds like they're transitioning from at the drive-in to Mars Volta. But this right here is full balls-to-the-wall Mars Volta. My experience with Prague is mostly uh, based in the classics. I've listened to Pink Floyd and Yes, like I discussed earlier, and to sort of modernize that comparison, a lot of the more modern prog I've listened to is like Tool. Tool does the more atmospheric sound that Pink Floyd does. They're still pretty technical compared to Pink Floyd, but they usually focus more on the sound of the record. They're slower, sometimes sludgier, and I feel like the Mars Volta is like modern Yes where it just is like a maraca of noise and they're just shaking it around and everything's going crazy. I, I would call it a clown car of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best term I could think of because there's just pure chaos. It really is. It's And chaotic is sometimes an understatement because it takes such hard, it takes such hard turns. Like if you want to nail down the, the, the mood of the album, that itself is chaotic because it goes from these aggressive you know, tracks in the opening to the last half of the album has some pretty mellow shit in it, like some really relaxing stuff. I mean, as relaxing as Prague gets. Um, mm -hmm. Things Behind the Sun, very quiet, very slowed down. 
I thought personally, uh, Soothsayer really creeps me out as a song. I don't know if you remember that one. It opens yeah. with, yeah, it opens with live field recordings from Jerusalem that Omar took. Oh, I didn't know about that. I can hear why that engineer was like, this is evil. This is just completely warped. You get a mm-hmm. lot of that feeling when you listen to it. Not knowing the story, I just listen to it as, oh, they're just being very brutally technical and they're using these effects that make the voice sound strange and ethereal to me. But, you know, now that I know that, oh, they have ghost blood, they have ghost boots and stuff, it's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot more deeper implications with it. And it makes me think that even if the process itself was exaggerated, even if they were sort of being a little bit too latched onto the idea that they were haunted, you can't make up that they they weren't spooked by it, that they weren't inspired to make this record to get rid of a curse. And I think yeah. that actually comes across very clearly on the album now that I know the story. I almost hate to say it, but it's like, I kind of want to get to really what feels like the closer of the episode in saying, after doing all this research and after listening through the album and digging through all of these articles on the making of Bedlam and Goliath, I have come to a conclusion. Oh, yeah? Uh, which is that it's all made up. <laughs> it's, it, it does. It's one of those things where it's like, all you have is the band's word, and if it's a bunch of musicians, and like the engineer who is like, oh, no, trust us, he never believes in ghosts, but now he thinks it's weird. It does mm-hmm. seem a little manufactured. This does feel like they came up with a really good campaign to sell a record. Have they talked about it at all after the record was released? I haven't seen a lot of Mars Volta press in the past 10 years. I really haven't read much beyond 2008 and 2009. This might be just me not knowing, but are they still the Mars Volta? Like, are they still together? Because I know they're not. They're not. I just know that At The Drive-In eventually came back together. Yeah, At The Drive-In did get back together in uh, 2016, 2017. I know it was shortly after the election. That was a good album. That was a good comeback album for them, in my opinion. But as to the credibility of this story, I just gotta say, they're creative types. They are very good at coming up with stories. And Cedric does not need fucking help coming up with the most batshit lyrics. He, re- <laughs> he, he really so doesn't. He's so good at it. Yeah. He's so good at it to the point that I'm like, I really don't believe you took this from Aramaic poetry. I'm pretty sure you made this up yourself. It's an incredibly fascinating listen, even more interesting of a story, whether it's press hype or not. But at the end of the day, I'd rather just listen to Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer, before we head out of this podcast, do you have anything you would like to plug? I host the Cock and Bull podcast. It's kind of similar to this, where we talk about these uh, zany, you know, off-the-rails stories. Uh, though they're they're less limited, and it's more world history. I also have a sci-fi podcast out. It's called Cooperative Effort. It's uh, 17 episodes. You could kill, like, two hours listening to it. You know, I think that's it for me. I don't do anything. Oh, no. <laughs> Jack, yes, you do. <laughs> Uh, I have a Twitch channel, New Jack Plus. You can watch me stream, maybe. Most of the time, I'm just watching other people, but I'd like to get started on that. And one of these days, I promise during this year, hopefully very soon, I will start releasing music. I don't know what it's going to be. It might be ambient. It might be rock. I don't really know. I dabble in a lot of things and never commit to any of it. So look forward to that, maybe. This has been Blunderphonics. Thank you all so much for listening in. And Spencer, thank you for 
giving me this wild journey into the Mars Volta. Absolutely. You're welcome for the week off. Now you can prepare for the next one. <laughs> oh my god, the next 30. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening in. Bye-bye.